consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flowers fall off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, a rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to all those who love him. Good morning. Good to, good to see you. Uh, I want you to imagine you are a child again, getting ready for bed, and your dad begins to read to you your favorite story. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. Anybody remember this? And now there's gum in my hair. And when I, I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was still running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Of course, the opening words to the, some of the finest piece, pieces of Western literature um, Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. His day doesn't get better, does it? At breakfast, he says, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. Wonderful book because we all can relate to Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. We've had our weeks, our months, our years, perhaps even more. New York Times editorial began, are we living in a post-happiness world? Headlines read, everyone is stressed out and there's no shortage of reasons why. According to the World Happiness Report, happiness in the United States is declining. Compared with other nations around the world, we rank 16th in happiness in nations around the world. You know who that places us behind? That means we're less happy than people in Germany. Think about that. In Canada, Canadians are happier than we are. And you know who else is happier than we are? People in Australia. Alexander was right all the time. 
maybe we should have moved to Australia. I read recently that the most popular course in the history of Yale University was offered in 2017. It was called Psychology and the Good Life, and nearly a quarter of Yale undergraduates signed up for the course. Lori Santos, the professor who taught the course, said she tries to teach students how to lead happier, more satisfying lives because what our institutions, she says, teach our students what will make, about what will make, make them happy, things like prestigious internships and good-paying jobs and winning the lottery and getting good grades, is totally wrong. And then she added, we need to move to Australia. No, she didn't really, but... And then we find it kind of interesting why, in contrast, Jesus, on the very most stressful night in history, looks at his disciples and is able to say, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, don't be fearful. How is it that we can live in the richest nation in the world with all the advances of modern medicine and technology and entertainment and psychology, and yet we find ourselves so strapped in our unhappiness. Today we're beginning a three-part series where we're talking about tests that we all face. I got to thinking if you're leading your friends to Christ and you're thinking now, what do I need to, how can I best help somebody who's just given their life to Christ? to prepare for life ahead. I thought there are three tests that we all have to, t to pass. The test of trouble, the test of temptation, and the test of transformation. How do we change? Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, we're all facing those things. Followers of Christ face those with victory. How do we do that? Today we want to begin by talking about facing the test of troubles. I think it's interesting that James begins by identifying self, himself in James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the ways that he could, how do you identify yourself? Of all the ways that he could have identified himself, he could have called himself the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. He could have identified himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He could have said, I'm the guy who, Mary was my mother too. But he didn't. He identifies himself as a slave, a doulos. Of Christ. And the entire letter of James basically is what does it look like to live as a slave of Christ? Um, what's it look to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ? And he opens it up with this first chapter where he just talks about these three tests that we all face. James 1 2, he says, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because, you know, the testing of your faith develops, produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. If that doesn't grab your attention, I don't, don't know what will. Consider it great joy when you go through troubles. There are two ways that people go through troubles. It makes them miserable. Or they learn joy. Followers of Jesus Christ experience joy. Today I want to talk about four or five lessons that James teaches us to be victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we believe your word is living and active. We believe that you want to give us your wisdom. We know that you are in this place. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's activity. Would you accomplish what you want in each soul within the sound of my voice today? Through Christ I pray. Amen. First thing that James points out, if we are going to be victorious in troubles, is the tests of troubles will come. Anticipate them. Don't, don't be surprised. Verse 2, consider a great joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Don't you appreciate how forthright he is, how, how, how clear? He doesn't say if you face, but when you face, you will face them. James here is kind of like a good parent sending a child to boot camp. What do you say to your child? You know, boy, how lucky you are that the government is paying for you to have a vacation by the ocean. I hear it's beautiful at Paris Island this year. Now, if they happen to wake you up before you're ready to wake up in the morning, and if somebody happens to raise their voice at you at some point, I mean, maybe it'll happen. Is that what you say? No. You say, boot camp is going to be the most difficult thing you've ever gone through in your life. And when you come out the other side, you are going to be more, more mature. You're going to be stronger than you've ever been before. That's James 1, 2. Troubles are going to come, he says. Be ready. Parents, there's wisdom here for us, isn't there? What's our instinct as parents? Most parents today want two things for their kids. They want their kids to be happy, and they want their kids to be safe. And so we tend to, we can, if we're not careful, overprotect them so that they can be happy and safe short term. But we don't do them any favors long term, do we? It's why we have things today that we call first world problems, right? You ever have any first world problems? Man, I am so upset because I dropped my iPhone on my iPad and now I have to buy a new iPad. You know, how can I sleep when the hired workers outside are making so much noise, you know, in the afternoon for my nap? You know, I, I saw this sign um, recently. It says, sorry, we may have moved your seat when we cleaned your car, Mercedes-Benz. Okay, that was not on my, that was not on my car, Tom Pounder's car. Um, first world problems. Parents, we do our kids no favor raising them to believe that they are entitled to a, an easy life, a happy life even. In their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, the authors who are not followers of Christ, don't claim to be, write this. Our overprotection of children has led to a generation that can't handle disagreement. They write, quote, a culture that allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger. You're doing violence. You know? It's a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. Doesn't that sound like James? In other words, our politically correct environment where it makes, we're so afraid of hurt people's feelings is actually doing more damage than good. In other words, the, the authors say we need to tell our kids from time to time in the years to come, I hope you'll be treated unfairly so you'll come to know the value of justice. 
I hope you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope that you'll be lonely from time to time so you won't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time so that you'll be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. Is that good? They go on. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, like the Philadelphia Phillies, aren't you glad, aren't you happy for Dusty Baker today. It's just like, yeah, the 75-year-old gets the world. Some of us are emotionally invested in, in Dusty Baker's life and um, you know, baseball. Anyway, as you, I'm certainly enjoying my message today. Are you? <laughs> and when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you'll know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn compassion. I love this. He says, whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit them from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. That's James 1. You're going to go through misfortunes. Consider it pure joy if you can learn the message in your misfortunes. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis very loosely, C.S. Lewis one time said, if you look at this world as a vacation, you are going to be miserably disappointed. But if you look at this world as a battleground to grow you, to perfect you, to prepare you for another world, it's really not so bad but it's no place to call home. What do you expect in this world? James says, anticipate troubles. Various troubles. And whenever you experience various trials, he says, the word that we get there in that Greek word is polka dot, diverse, many colored trials. They come at different levels. Some of our troubles are fender bender problems. Some are head-on collisions. Some experience a blister, others gangrene. Some lose a wallet, others a career. Some experience the betrayal of a new friend, others the betrayal of a spouse. Some experience a delay in their plans because it rains today. Others experience the death of a dream devastated by some unseen storm. The trials that come are various in sizes and directions. You may suffer a broken back or a broken spirit, diabetes from childhood, or maybe the loss of a parent in childhood. Some struggle with an eating disorder. Others will struggle with starvation. Some will... Some problems will come from a teenager's rebellion, others from a parent's abandonment. Whatever the troubles come, expect them. Remember what Jesus said when he talked about anxiety in Matthew 6? 
He's talking about don't worry. And he goes through this whole list. And then he says, and don't worry about tomorrow. And what do you expect him to say? Because tomorrow will be a better day. That's what he says. He says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's going to be enough trouble to worry about tomorrow, worry about tomorrow, 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 to worry about, take care of today's problems today. But then he says, remember, but see first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Whatever day you're going through, you go with me in those trials, and it'll be fine. The Apostle Paul gives the same kind of warning to Christians in what we would call modern-day Turkey, where he writes, talks to them in Acts 14, verse 22, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. First and second Peter are written to people who are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution. And Peter will write to them in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised when fiery ordeals come among you to test you. As if something unusual were happening to you, it is so easy to read this on Sunday morning and to believe it, isn't it? And then what happens? Something hits us out of nowhere, and it's like, I was surprised. Didn't expect that. Why me? You know, and it's kind of like, this is really unusual. You know, uh, nobody else has gone through this kind of thing. No, 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 everybody's gone through something like this before. As though something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. God's going to reveal the character of Jesus in you, and he's going to reveal himself to you at the end of time. So overcome discouragement by accepting reality. In this world, you will have trouble, but trust Jesus. Again, Jesus said it in John 16, 33, I have told you these things that in me you might have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be of courageous. I've conquered the world. In me, you will have peace. Not in money, not in your own wisdom, not in power, not in blaming, not in meditation, not in your own understanding. In me, you will have peace. Lean on him. Second, most trouble fuels growth. Rejoice. Most, but not all. Sometimes people say the thing, well, the good thing about troubles is that they make you grow. No, not always. George Mark Elliott was a professor where I went to school, he said, the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. The same sun, the same cancer that may cause some to soften toward God will cause others to harden toward God. The same hurts that cause some to get bitter will cause some to become more gracious. Consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials, James says. Because, you know, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. God has a purpose. He has a plan for what you're doing. Kim Fook is known as the napalm girl. The young girl that was made famous by this 1972 picture Pulitzer Prize winning picture from Vietnam showing her running down the street after a napalm attack. You may not be aware, but today she thanks God. She thanks God for that moment. She's a Christian, you see. She tells people, you've seen my picture a thousand times. 
I'm nine years old running along a puddled roadway, arms outstretched, naked, shrieking in pain and fear, the dark corridor of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance. Those bombs have brought me immeasurable pain. The emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure, she says. She said she grew up in a religion called Kaudai, but it didn't satisfy her, didn't answer her questions. And then one day in 1982, she was in a library in Saigon where she found a Bible and began to read about Jesus. She noticed two things about Jesus. First of all, she noticed that in Kaudai they talked about being many gods, but Jesus said he is God. The only way, the only truth. Second, she noticed Jesus' suffering, she said, that he had been mocked and tortured and killed. And she asked, why would he endure these things if he were not God? She writes, I'd never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. I came to believe that he really was who he said he was. And most important to me, that he really would do all that he had promised in his word. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, and in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day but my faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who have hurt and scarred me. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. How can you be thankful? How could she be th thankful for that napalm road? Because it really did change her to draw her closer to God to learn to forgive, to tr learn trust and grace. It's a dramatic illustration, I know. I share it because I don't have one that's anywhere close to it personally. But I fear that some of you do. I'm guessing that some of you have deep scars that you're carrying. And you wonder, yeah, Jesus can help with others, but can he really heal mine? Can I really be thankful for mine? He wants you. He, he wants to heal your scars. He wants to bring you joy. The Apostle Paul had his napalm road. He called it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him so he wouldn't exalt himself. Three times he asked God to take it away from him, but God said, no, you're going to learn my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I will gladly boast all the more in my, about my weakness, that pain, that napalm road, that weakness. God wants to turn to strength if you will turn it to him, surrender it to him. So now he says, I take pleasure in weakness and insults and hardship and persecution and difficulties for the sake of Christ, not for his own sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What's your napalm road? What's your thorn? 
You know how God works, don't you? If you pray for patience, what's God going to do to you? Make your life easy? Treat you like a king or a queen? No. What happens? Pray for patience. I dare you to pray for patience. I hate praying for patience. Because you find yourself in those situations where it's like, oh, oh, I just, you're behind the, you're behind the slow car no matter what lane you get in, you know. You pray, God, help me to overcome my anger. And so he makes life really smooth for you. No, he puts you in situations with people who are non-compass menace. And you're just like, oh, God, why am I angry all the time? Because you prayed, God, take away my anger. You pray, God, draw me closer to you. He's not going to give you a day at the beach. Maybe he will. I don't know. But usually he's going to test you, try you. What's God's agenda for your marriage? You say, so I can experience love. Yeah. So I can have companionship. Yeah. Here's the question. What's God really want out of you? What want for you? Just happiness or happiness that's the result of holiness? So guess what he's going to do with your marriage? He's going to use your marriage as a place to make you holy. Let me ask you, put it like this. Do you expect your marriage to be a vacation that's always easy, or do you expect your marriage to be a place that can be a fire to hone you, to make you trust God more, to teach to forgive, to teach to be patient? God wants you to be happy, but he wants you to be holy first. Now, husbands, wives, this is not your excuse to be a thorn, okay? You can't say, yeah, I'm a thorn because I'm doing God's will in your life. I'm teaching you patience. That's why I exist. You know, kind of, no, don't do that. You're worn out? Feel like quitting? It's a thorn. You're discouraged? You feel like you, or you, you struggle with discouragement more than others? It's a thorn. Do you hear God saying, Come to me, all who are weak. I'll give you rest. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have, I have yet to get a flat tire on 66, and my first thought be, praise the Lord. I wonder how he wants to grow me now. You know? No, it's usually, Ugh! but then, but it, it, it shows that we're maturing. When we find ourselves in the middle of those situations, we take a breath and we step back and we say, okay, God, what are you up to now? You've grown me in the past through trials. I know I want to grow now. Again, 1 Peter 1, 6. Rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer various trials. There's that word again. So the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is going to reveal himself in you in this life, and he's going to reveal himself to you at the end of time. And at that day, you'll say it's worth it all. Passing the test of trouble demands wisdom. Ask God for it. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Now, we know there's a difference between knowledge and Wisdom. Knowledge has to do with facts. Wisdom has to do with application. Knowledge tells us tomato, a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom teaches us you don't put it in fruit salad. Husbands, 
Knowledge tells us what we could say. Wisdom tells us not to say it. Wisdom is godly knowledge applied to godly action. But when we're tested by storms in life, we need more than knowledge. We need wisdom. The religious leaders had, wis- had knowledge in Jesus' day. Remember? What do they say? We have the law. And then they crucified Jesus. We need, under pressure, we need wisdom. Under pressure, we tell grieving widows and widowers, don't make a decision the first year after you've lost your spouse. Lawyers are told, don't defend yourself in court. A lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. To pass the test of trials, in the midst of the trial, ask God for wisdom. And the question is, where will you turn first? What wisdom will you hold on to? Will you turn to your own voice? Will you turn to Oprah? Will you turn to the peer pressure? Where do you turn to first? One of the mistakes people of Israel made in the Old Testament is that they turned to foreign people. You know, one of the classic examples is in Isaiah 30, uh, they're being attacked by the Assyrians. And so they don't turn to God, they turn to Egypt. Actually, they turned to God. They wanted to like, do the, well, God, we're not going to turn away from you, but we want to turn to e- Egypt too. Isaiah chapter 30, God says, Woe to the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They make an alliance that everybody else thinks is smart, but against my will, piling sin on top of sin, without asking my advice, they go down to Egypt. So what do we do? Do we turn to God or do we turn to financial directors and God? Do we turn to peer pressure and God? George Barna addressed a group of Christians in Atlanta a couple of months ago, and he said, American, America is a country in spiritual crisis because Christians go to church and they hold on to what they want to believe about the Bible, and then they will combine it with what, they, with, with what culture believes with what the world around them believes, and they'll put them together and they'll call it Christianity. This is as old as the people of Israel turning to Egypt for wisdom and plans. Who will you turn to first? Be hungry for God. Jeremiah 29 verse 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your hearts. So search for God with all your heart. As you are reading the Bible every day, are you searching for all your heart? My temptation is, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. My temptation is, I get through the reading. Good, I've gotten through the reading. Can't remember a thing that I read, but at least I've gotten through the reading. I need to slow it down. God, what are you telling me? What do you want me to hear? Help me to focus and chew on one, on one verse, on one idea today. Are you in a small group? I'm so, I can't tell you. Like my Saturday morning uh, men's group that, where we read the Bible together, I get so much out of reading the Bible together slowly with them and, and hearing it. I, I, I learn more being in that group than I would by myself. God gives wisdom through spiritual mentors. Who are your spiritual mentors? You know, I pray. I've prayed from the time I was a little kid. Um, God, give me wisdom. And one of the ways that he's done that is through, you'd say, really, Brett? I don't think so. But at any rate, but believe that, really, really stupid and unwise. But it's through mentors. Ever, ever since I was a little kid, God has had mentors in my life that I can go to when I need wisdom. Who are your spiritual mentors? They have a biblical worldview and they're mature. 
This week you're going to be tested by troubles. Where will you turn? To Egypt? To the bottle? To your heart? To God. And be confident. Verse 6 says, And let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind like a cork up and down. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Without doubting. God wants to give you wisdom. Don't doubt it. Your faith is not in your prayer. Your faith is in God really does want to give you wisdom. And then don't doubt the wisdom that he gives you. That's the other thing. If God tells you to be, to be, to be pure and you start to second guess, well, should I, do I really need to do that? If God tells you to be disciplined and you start second guess, do I really need to, you know? Jesus says, go and make disciples. Do I, is that really wisdom for me? I don't know. You're like a wave being blown around by the wind. Don't doubt God's wisdom. Obey his wisdom when he gives it to you. Next, James gives us a trial that demands our wisdom, finances. We're going to take four hours right now just to talk about that. Now I'm going to deal with it devotionally today, and you're saying, don't have to listen to that one. Um, but finally, I want to say, we want to overcome trials by focusing on our reward, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get knocked down. Get back up, because your eye's on the goal. There's a reward. I've read that... Um, Walter Payton made the, the uh, Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame by getting knocked down every four yards. <laughs> no matter who you are, you're going to get knocked down. The question is, do you get back up and keep going toward the goal to win the game? Somebody said God had one son without sin, but no children without suffering. Galatians 6, 9 says, let's not become tired in doing good. For in due season, we, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. We all get tired doing good. We get worn out. We want to quit. Keep your eye on the reward. There is a sweet joy in winning after you've suffered. Any athletes among us, there's a sweet joy in coming and, and, and to the end of the season and getting the victory. After you have struggled and suffered and sweat and hurt. I think about Cindy O'Connor who's been leading our children's ministry now for almost three decades. Boy, she's been knocked down a lot. <laughs> three decades of, 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 of working with kids and teaching the gospel and recruiting adults. Cindy will tell you she hates to answer her phone on Sunday morning because it's always going to be, almost always, it's, it's a teacher saying, I'm sorry, I'm sick. Or my kids are sick and I can't make it today. And it's like, ah. But think about the reward of three decades of teaching kids the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think about my grandmother who taught for 50, five decades. Great is their reward. 
I think about Pat Ferguson. I remember our last capital campaign, Pat stood in front of us toward the end of that capital campaign, and he just started to cry. Pat Ferguson's not a crier, but he's given, he's sacrificed so much, and there's just so much reward when God brings a victory. I think about those of you who've been part of New Life for a long time, who are, who've been part of giving and sacrificing so we can be in this place and doing the ministry in this place. And you walk into this place and you have a sense of reward that God has used you. And it, was, it took sacrifice. You went without. But now God is changing lives. Thomas Paine said, what we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. Consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials because you're focused on the reward and you'll know it'll be worth it all. Focus means everything. Remember that old, there are about three of us probably that remember an old hymn called Count Your Blessings. Um, there was a psychologist one time named Bob Emmons who decided to conduct a study based on that. He had two groups. One group didn't count their blessings. The other group he had write down their blessings every day. Didn't matter what the day was, write down their blessings every day. At the end of the study, you know what he discovered, because if he hadn't discovered it, I wouldn't be using it to close the, the sermon today, would I? At the end of the study, what he discovered was the group that counted their blessings, that wrote them down every day, were not just happier, more contented, but they were actually healthier physically and emotionally than the group that didn't. Please hear me on this because a secular world doesn't understand this. The difference between happiness, between joy, was not in their experience. It was not in whether somebody had more good days or bad days or, or, or fewer bad days. It wasn't wealth or poverty. That didn't make a difference. It wasn't how other people treated them whether they were mistreated or well-treated. The difference was attitude. The difference was the choice to focus on the blessings. Simply counting their blessings made them happier and more joyful. You know, our parents and the Bible have been right all along. Joy really is a choice. James 1 2 tells us, so we count it all joy when we face various trials. Trials are inevitable. Misery is optional. Joy is your choice in walking with Christ. I pray that you will walk with Christ today and know his reward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ and for your love for us. We thank you for what you are doing in the easy times as well as in the difficult times. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. And when all the world around us is reacting and they lose perspective because they're focused on the dirt, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, knowing that you are in control, that you are good, that you are blessing that you give victory 
I pray, Lord, that you would be our peace, that you would be our hope, that you would be our joy, and that we would, as a result of that, be a light to the world around us that so desperately needs you. Through Christ we pray, amen.